Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am so glad you're here joining me as we once again go back to the beginning. The beginning of the Bible, anyway, to pick up where we left off in the last episode in Genesis. So as I promised, we are going to backtrack to the creation of Adam from dust in chapter 2 and move forward in our study time from there. Ready? Of course you are, right? (laughs) In light of all we've been studying in previous episodes about the majesty and glory God displayed in the creation account, Do you ever stop to consider that of all the things God could have used to make man, he chose dust? Interesting to think of, right? Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 reads, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So dust plus breath of God equals a living person. How incredible is that? Before we move on to further develop both verses 7 and 25 as promised, I want to press pause for a minute to jump in to some interesting thoughts from a profile I found about Adam in my New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible. It reads, We can hardly imagine what it must have been like to be the first and only person on earth. It's one thing for us to be lonely. It was another for Adam, who had never known another human being. He missed much of what makes us who we are. He had no childhood, no parents, no friends or family. He had to learn how to be a human on his own. Fortunately, God didn't let him struggle too long before presenting him with an ideal companion and mate, Eve. Theirs was a complete, innocent, and open oneness without a hint of shame. I had definitely never thought about Adam's experience from that perspective before. Wow, plus the ending statement there, without a hint of shame, is a perfect segue for us as we take a closer look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, which reads, Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I once heard this thought in relation to this scripture, and it has so helped me to clarify, well, clarify is just a little bit anyway, maybe, (laughs) what this nakedness with no shame feeling was like. Have you ever noticed how a little child can run naked through a room full of strangers without embarrassment? The child is not aware of his or her nakedness, just as Adam and Eve were not embarrassed in their innocence. As the mama of five kiddos, this is a comparison I can understand and may even witness a time or two in the process of raising our fairing five. (laughs) I absolutely love how Lisa Turkhurst ties both the creation of Adam and Eve alongside their nakedness with absolutely no shame together in this excerpt from her Forgiving What You Can't Forget book. She shares, One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were vulnerable not at the risk of being exposed, but so very open to being loved. They didn't feel ashamed of themselves. They didn't shame each other. They didn't act shamefully in any way. I've often said this was because they had no other opinions to contend with but the absolute love of God. This is true. But I also now see more to unpack here. They knew they were made by God, fully and wonderfully special, even though the actual ingredients God used to make them were seemingly so very humble and basic. Dust and broken off bone don't seem like the most promising of beginnings. Those ingredients are seemingly void of any potential. 
When we think of dust, we often think of what's left behind after something gets broken or what needs to be wiped away after too much neglect. And an exposed rib bone is one of 24 others like it, hidden under flesh and not seen until life no longer exists and decay has done its work. Left on their own, these ingredients would amount to nothing, insignificant, unacceptable. But chosen by God and then breathed on and touched by God, they became the only part of creation made in the image of God. They were nothing turned into the most glorious something. They were made to be a reflection of the image of God. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. These image bearers made an invisible God's image visible. As image bearers, they were to fill the earth with evidence of God's goodness and the glory of God. What made them glorious wasn't how they started off as dust and bone, but who they were made by, God himself. They accepted who they were based on, who they knew God to be. I see no evidence they were displeased with how they were made before the fall. They were both naked and felt no shame. What an amazing thought. Dust and broken off bone living together in complete vulnerability with one another and untainted confidence in their worth and value as they lived alongside their creator. Nothing turned into the most glorious something. Absolutely amazing. Okay, friends, now that we've completed our study of chapters one and two in the book of Genesis, how about we begin our deep dive into chapter three? As always, while I'm reading these verses aloud to you, please be listening for the overall theme of the passage, listening for anything repetitive, listening for anything unusual, confusing, exciting, awe-inspiring. Well, you get the idea. Looking for God's character or even what we learn about God in these passages, plus any possible sightings of Jesus. Ready to dig in? Me too. Genesis chapter 3 from the New Living Translation reads, The Man and Woman's Sin. Verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. 
and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you are made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she will be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent them out to cultivate the ground from which they had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So if you recall, we ended our time studying Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve naked without shame, completely comfortable in who they are with God and with each other, no need to hide anything. No doubt, insecurity, unworthiness, fear, anxiety, or regret. They knew their Creator loved them. They are in the middle of a beautiful garden with all their needs and wants met. Everything is perfect. And instead of protecting Eden like God instructed them to do, they dropped their guard. Then entered the enemy who spoke four words in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 that stole it all away. Did God really say? Words intended to lure God's children away from their Creator to separate them from the one in whom they found close relationship, love, and purpose. Words intended to deceive them, to turn their hearts from the very one who lovingly and intentionally formed them, created them, and knew them by name. Take a listen to this related portion from the Answers to Your Deepest Longings, 40 Days Through the Bible Study by Lisa Turkers and the Proverbs 31 Ministries team. Adam and Eve's choice to believe the enemy over God ended their intimate fellowship with God and from God's best gift of all, life forever with God himself. The enemy, the devil, the liar, the father of lies, enticed them away from God's beautiful plans for them. Adam and Eve failed to recognize the work of the enemy. Thankfully, God has made it easier to recognize the enemy at work in our own midst. He has given us his written word that identifies the evil one and outlines his schemes and tactics. This is good news because now we can be on the alert. We can know how to recognize him. We won't be caught off guard as Adam and Eve were. Friend, thank God for the gift of his word. Treasure it, read it, study it, pray through it so that the enemy will never have the advantage. In seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, Lisa Turker's most recent Bible study, she further develops this concept of the importance of being in close relationship with God and his word in this way. When everything is calm and in place, we might forget to stay intentional. We may get lax in reading our Bible. We may get more inconsistent with praying. If we let our guard down, the enemy often starts his full-on assault of temptation. The serpent successfully tempts Adam and Eve, which leads to a rupture in relationship with God, creation, and God's people. In the Gospels, we find Jesus in a similar predicament where he is tempted by Satan. But just before Jesus is tempted, we find him in what may have been the most epic moment of his earthly life and ministry. After Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, God the Father says to Jesus, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Let's not skip this moment or overlook its significance. Right before Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, the same serpent from Genesis 3, God the Father publicly affirms and confirms him. Not many would go into the wilderness willingly, 
The wilderness for the Israelites, and even for us today, represents isolation and hardship. For Jesus, going to the wilderness of a physical desert meant treacherous dangers like wild animals and no guarantees of water supply. Yet Jesus was led into the wilderness where he would prove himself to be the better and greater Adam. Jesus was tempted, but he was not deceived. Jesus used the word of truth, or God's word, to show us how powerful truth is against the enemy's schemes. Adam and Eve knew God's words, but lacked the trust to follow God's instructions when their own desires seemed more appealing. Jesus knew the truth because he himself is the truth. He lived out this truth in everything he did and through everything he faced. And because of Jesus, everything changed. The ruptured relationship between God and his people caused by sin is repaired in Christ. He isn't just the better and greater Adam. He is the Savior King. What an interesting scripture comparison for us to consider. Temptation in the Garden of Eden versus Jesus' temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. All of this is yet one more reminder that what we are doing here, digging into God's word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is so very, very valuable, my Bible study friends. As a quick side note here, be sure to check out in the show notes for a scripture reference from the book of Romans for even more comparison of both Adam and Jesus. For now, though, let us begin our closer look at these first verses found in Genesis chapter 3 by carefully comparing how God's instructions are subtly changed from his original instructions in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, to how they are remembered in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. What changes do you see? Let's consider how these subtle changes to God's word reflect a distorted picture of God's character in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. In her book, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, Lisa Turkhurst provides some following insights about this subtle shift in God's instructions and the damage it ultimately ends up causing. Look at the dangerous progression that happened with Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, God's first three words to Adam when telling him the rule of not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were, you are free. God gave him a message of freedom with one restriction for his protection. But when the serpent quoted this rule to Eve, he changed God's language of freedom to complete restriction with no freedom at all. When quoting God, the serpent's first three words were, you must not eat. And then he finished by exaggerating the rule to say Adam and Eve must not eat from any tree in the garden. Eve heard the mistake and corrected the serpent, but then added her own restriction that was a complete misquote of God's rule. We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it, or you will die. God never said anything about touching the fruit, and he certainly didn't say if they touched it that they would die. She assumed this. Please see how dangerous this assumption was. She got alone with her thoughts and assumptions, and it led her to doubt God, and take control to get what she wanted, what she thought was best. And do you see how the serpent played into this? You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat, From it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, Eve, it's not a bad thing to want to be like God, is it? Why would God keep this from you? I don't want to assign her a thought that we can't see verified in Scripture, but her disobedience seems to point to the same struggle I have when I don't like God's plan. Surely I could do this better than God. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some. Don't miss this. Before she ate it, she took it. She touched it, and she didn't die. Then she ate it and gave some to Adam, who was with her, and also saw that Eve didn't die when she touched it. So he ate some, and sin entered in. 
Do you see how dangerous that misquote, that misunderstanding of God's instruction was? Eve's assumption that she would die when she touched the fruit seemed to prove God wrong, and it reinforced the lie of the serpent that she could be like God. She didn't die, so maybe she did know better. This very dangerous perception could have been the one that helped her justify the next step of eating the fruit. This is the progression of sin, and this just wasn't a personal tragedy for Adam and Eve. It ushered in a horrific reality for all of humanity. Perfection ended. Curses began. Consequences were unleashed, and they were banished from the garden. Spiritual death was immediate. Physical death was imminent. From dust they came, and not a dust they would return. But here's the good news. Even when we follow in Eve's footsteps, when we try to take control and make assumptions and misunderstand God on every level, He still has a plan. A good plan. A plan that makes something from dust. And eventually, we will understand that God hasn't denied us the best. He's offering us the very best offering by offering Himself. He is our only source of perfection on this side of eternity, and He sees a perfect plan for our dust. Wow. And here we are back to dust. Whenever I hear the reference to dust, I'm always reminded of the worship song Beautiful Things by the band Gunger. The part of the lyrics that come to mind are these. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. Pretty amazing if you ask me. The fact that the God of the universe who breathes out stars and light would choose to use us as an invaluable part of his rescue plan here on earth is breathtaking to say the very least. In an effort to provide us with more insight and clarification regarding what is happening in chapter 3, the Bible recap says, When Eve questions God's goodness, she buys a lie that he's holding out on her and decides she'd make a better God. That's when the world was first fractured by sin, and it's still fracturing. Not only do we still believe and act on the same lies, but the curses proclaimed over Adam and Eve still resonate in our world today. Part of Eve's curse was that her desire will be to control and rule over Adam, Part of Adam's curse is that what he's in charge of cultivating will work against him. The Bible recap then goes on to say, God is our creator and the Lord over everything. But despite his lordship and his perfection, he is merciful toward the sinners he's in relationship with. He said they'd die if they ate the fruit, but he lets them live. He doesn't strike them down on the spot. Anytime we see God hedge on his promises, it's always on the side of mercy. He doesn't break promises, he exceeds them. We see it again in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, when they're hiding from him and lying to him. Before they even repent, he pursues them out of his great love. At the height of their sin, he continues to show them both mercy and discipline. It's such a gift to them, and it is to us too, that he doesn't give up on pursuing us. Oh my, thank you, Father God, for your unending grace, mercy, and love for us. Moving on, listen to this study note from the Everman's Bible. Before I read it, though, I must say I know what you may be thinking, but I just love the perspectives found in this Bible I purchased for Jason many years ago. (laughs) And as always, I promise to provide a link in the show notes so you can all take a look for yourself if you would like to. Anyway, the footnote asks a question I've often thought when reading in Genesis, and maybe you have too. Why did God forbid Adam and Eve to eat from a single tree? Why didn't he create a world where people couldn't sin? Or why didn't he make people so they couldn't disobey his commands? The answer lies in the nature of God. God is love and desires to have a loving relationship with his creatures. He wants us to respond to him with love in return. But a loving response is only possible when we have a choice to do otherwise. He wants us to obey because we love him, not because we have little or no choice. Beginning in verse 15, 
we see what the Jesus Bible study note refers to as the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, or the first reference to the plan of God to save fallen sinners. God's judgment of sin is interrupted by a stunning picture of His grace. God promises that sin will not have the final word. He will not abandon His creation to destruction, but will pursue it in love. His promise is clear. A descendant of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The heel of this male heir of the first parents will be struck, though the child will emerge victorious by crushing the head of the evil one. The exact nature of the plan is yet to be explained, but the plan was already in place. Jesus, the promised seed of the woman, would leave no doubt as to the fulfillment of this promise. It would appear that Satan had done far more than strike the heel of the Son of God as Jesus hung lifeless on a cross. But God would have the final word. Through Jesus' victorious resurrection, he would crush the head of Satan, permanently declaring victory over sin and death and fulfilling the promise made here at the outset of the Bible. So with all this snakehead crushing talk fresh in our minds, I just have to take a moment here to share with you some of Levi Lesko's message entitled The End of Christmas. I heard this one at H2O Church Attica on the Sunday after Christmas this past December, and I am truthfully still in awe about how this message was just a perspective I hadn't considered, but certainly needed to hear as I was already thinking and planning the podcast content for Genesis chapter 3 at that time. God sure doesn't waste a thing, does he? Lesko takes us through the Old Testament and on into the New Testament to show us Satan's repeated attempts throughout it all to avoid the fulfillment of God's promise is found in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Here is an excerpt. But I do want to say from the get-go that I highly recommend you go to the YouTube link in the show notes to watch the message in its entirety. So much goodness. Lesko says, We read about Christmas in Matthew 2, but it actually shows up back in Genesis 3, back when Adam and Eve fell and God was doling out the punishment. He spoke a prophecy about what he is going to do to fix it, and the answer was his son, Jesus, coming. That's Christmas. That's the Incarnation. That's Emmanuel. That's God with us. That's back in Genesis 3. Then he turned to the snake, who was the one who had deceived the woman, and he said this. He said of the Messiah, you will strike his heel, and then to the snake, but he's going to crush your head. Listen to me. The heel being struck means the serpent's going to strike the heel of the Savior, but he's going to deal with the snake like a snake needs to be dealt with. Mama's going to knock you out, right? That's what he said the Messiah was going to do, and that prophecy was all the way back in Genesis 3. Now listen to me. Imagine if you got a text from a number you had never been texted from, and they said something to you, and you're like, uh, new phone, who's this? And they said, uh, hey, so next Thursday, I'm going to crush your head. You would probably spend most of the week planning a strategy by which you wouldn't get your head crushed. You'd just be thinking to yourself, I got stuff to do. I've got to go to work today. I got to avoid getting my head crushed. Like, who is this person who's going to crush my head? God basically told the devil this, my son's going to crush your head. So what did Satan do? He spent all of the rest of the Old Testament and spills over into the New and on to the very end of the book of Revelation even, trying to avoid getting his head crushed. And God promised it was going to happen through this line, through Adam and Eve, through this family. And he got more specific as it went on. Eventually, Abraham was called. He said, you're going to have a family. It's going to be called the nation of Israel. Out of your family, the Messiah is coming. Out of your family, Abraham, is going to come this deliverer that's going to be a blessing to the whole world. So he focused his efforts on Israel. That's why Pharaoh wakes up one day and thinks, what do I need to do today? I'm going to build a sphinx. I'm going to work on my pyramid. Oh, I'm going to kill all the Jews. Let's throw all the baby boys into the river. Let's just do that today. It was Satan trying to not get his head crushed. 
Well, why do you think that after God got more specific and said it's not just Israel, but it's going to be a lion of the tribe of Judah out of the 12 sons of Israel, why do you think all of a sudden that when he said that, that it's not going to be just out of Judah, but it's going to be this branch of the house and lineage of King David? Why do you think Saul wakes up one day and says, man, David, you've been really good to me. You killed Goliath. You married my daughter. You fight my battles for me. I think I'll kill you, right? Like what in the world is going on here? Lesko continues in his message by saying, It's Satan trying to not get his head crushed. Because if David's family is dead, and there are no descendants of David alive on the earth, guess what? No head crusher can show up. When you think, in the book of Esther, that this maniac who worked for King Xerxes in the Persian Empire wakes up one day, the man named Haman, and says, You know what would be cool? I think I should kill all the Jews. And it would have worked too had there not been a quick-thinking and clear-headed man named Mordecai, and a fast courageous, bold woman, maybe the boldest and most amazing woman who ever lived, Queen Esther. If it wouldn't have been for that, this nation would have been wiped out and there wouldn't have been the promise connecting to the garden of someone who could come and crush the head of the serpent. Y'all, this is nearly all the entirety of the Old Testament summarized. I think we'll stop with the message excerpt right here, but I am curious about what do you think of all that, my friends? It's kind of like a fire hose of information, but the bottom line is this. Satan's head was crushed under the feet of the one who came to us as a baby in the manger, Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus, our Emmanuel, fulfilled God's promise from the very beginning by crushing Satan when he died for our sins on the cross and then rose from the dead. Absolutely amazing, right? Before we wrap up our time together today, can I just interject here one more side note from the seeing Jesus in the Old Testament study I previously referenced in this episode. If you remember all the way back to our Advent study episodes in December, we discussed Jesus' family lineage as detailed in the New Testament books of both Matthew and also Luke. Well, Turkers gives us a bit more framework here to consider. In Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, we find Luke ending the genealogy of Jesus with the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke starts with Jesus, the capital S son of God, in verse 25 and ends with Adam, the little s son of God. Why would Luke do this? to draw a connection for us between Jesus and Adam. To begin to see Jesus in the Old Testament, the first place to look is Adam. Just one more example, my friends, of Jesus being there in the Bible from the very beginnings found in this book, in these thin, crinkly pages. As the subtitle of the Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament study says, He's never absent, we're never alone. I love this so very, very much. Now, as a way of tying together all we've studied so far in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, Let's pull a bit from Right Now Media's study called God's Unbreakable Promises with Jenny Allen. It begins, Genesis 2 draws us into the intimacy of God's creation of humanity. Here God forms a man out of the dust of the ground. He breathes life into him. He creates woman out of the man's rib and brings her to the man to be his indispensable companion. But what is most significant about this retelling of creation, what should stop us dead in our tracks, is that we see a God who took the time took the trouble, took the energy to make humanity, not out of some feeling of loneliness or wanting for anything, but out of overflowing abundance of his love. We see in Genesis 2 that God acts to bring us into relationship with himself, from the light to the land to the animals to the vegetation. He formed all of creation in order to make a place where we could dwell in relationship with him. He created a world for us, a good world, where we could be with him. While the first two chapters of the book of Genesis give us a glimpse of an idyllic paradise, Only one chapter later, paradise is lost. Deceived by a snake and led by her own faulty thinking about God's explicit command, Eve takes fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, eats it, and gives some to her husband. 
A moment later, the open, perfect fellowship of Genesis 2, what made it possible for the man and his wife to stand before each other naked without a trace of shame, vanishes. And for the first time, Adam and Eve use God's creation to hide themselves, both from each other and from God. Only four verses later, an already strained relationship is pushed to the limit as a man turns against God and his wife. Before all is said and done, all of creation, the man, the woman, the earth, will suffer the consequences of their sin. As Genesis 3 comes to an end, God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden to make their life east of Eden. It's all too familiar what we see in Genesis 3, and if we were left with a picture of a man and his wife broken by sin, it would be almost unbearable. But the thing about God is that he's merciful. And so, in the midst of the shame and hiding, blame and accusation, the pain of childbirth and the cursing of the ground, God made a promise not to the man and to the woman, but to the snake. God said, Because you have done this, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Wrapped in that promise, we find the foreshadowing of the gospel, the good news that God would send someone who would set right what Adam and Eve's sin had broken. And God has been true to his word, moving heaven and earth to restore what was lost in Genesis chapter 3. Gracious friends, let me say that last bit one more time in case we missed it. And God has been true to his word, moving heaven and earth to restore what was lost in Genesis 3. Promise keeper, way maker, miracle worker. Thank you, God. Okay, please, please remember that this show is scheduled to release every other Wednesday, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Up next time will be, drumroll, all things Genesis chapter 4, and continue our study up through the end of chapter 5, Cain and Abel, a lineage from Adam to Noah, a man named Enoch, and a few more bonus tips added in about how to get the most of your Bible study time. Sounds like another jam-packed episode to me. I so hope you will join me next time, my Bible study friends. In the meantime, though, could you please do me a favor and share this episode with three or more people? And go to your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and review, because as I've said before, that is the absolute best way to help others find out about this show to study alongside us. Also, be sure to listen to episodes one and two if you haven't already while you are there, because these two prep episodes set the stage for our study time together. And remember, if you are curious about digging deeper into any of the things that we talked about today, be sure to check out the show notes by swiping up on your podcast app screen to see them below. But if you can't find them there, they're always available at my website, mfaring.com, in the show notes section of the podcast pages. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together again next time, my friends.